0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I'm Nicholas Gordon, host of the Asian Review of Books podcast done in collaboration with the New Books Network. In this podcast, we interview fiction and nonfiction authors working in, around, and about the Asia-Pacific region. The history of India and Pakistan since partition has been marked by countless skirmishes and four major wars. The second conflict, the 1965 war between India and Pakistan along its long land border, featured some of the largest tank battles since the Second World War and some of the first skirmishes between the Indian and Pakistani air forces. It reshaped regional and global geopolitics, pushing India closer to the Soviet Union and Pakistan closer to China. But the war didn't arise from nowhere, as Shiv Kunal Verma notes in his newest history, 1965, A Western Sunrise, published by a left Book Company last year. The book notes the timeline leading up to the war, including the 1962 war with China and the skirmish in the run of Kutch months before Operation Gibraltar in Kashmir. Nor did it end with a great deal of finality, with months of conflict following a ceasefire, an instability that again erupted in war in 1971. Chief Kunal Verma is a military historian and filmmaker working with all three branches of the Indian Armed Forces. He helped to write The Long Road to Siachen, The Question Why, and Courage and Conviction, the autobiography of General V.K. Singh. His previous book, 1962, The War That Wasn't, has been hailed as one of the most definitive works on the Indo China conflict. Today, Kunal and I talk about the 1965 India Pakistan war, how the 1962 war with China helped to set the stage for 65, the breadth of the conflict along the India Pakistan border, and how the 65 war has repercussions that can still be seen today. So, Kunal, thank you so much for joining me on the Age of Review Books podcast to talk about your book. I want to start with maybe talking about the importance of the 1965 war. You know, why is it so important to understand, you know, especially amid, you know, the decades of war and skirmishes along the India-Pakistan border? Um, the 1965 war is one of four, I think, wars between India and Pakistan. So what makes this war in particular um, so interesting and so important to understand?
1: Well, uh, yeah, great to be on your show. It's uh, it's a privilege. Thank you very much for inviting me. Um, the nineteen sixty five conflict, as you as you rightly pointed out, there have been not I mean four official wars with Pakistan since nineteen forty seven when both countries became independent. Uh, nineteen sixty five, in my opinion, is perhaps a kind of a watershed because various uh, things that happened. Uh, the reason why sixty five is particularly important is that the so India was recovering from the debacle against the Chinese in 1962, where we performed very poorly, if I may say so. And uh, I mean, uh, in fact, the from a military point of view, it was an absolute disaster. From a political point of view, it was a shambles. And India's self-esteem was at literally at the boot level. And uh, that was one of the reasons why in '65, we needed to pick ourselves up. I mean, it was like a a boxer would be knocked down very badly, and you had to, you know, you had, had plenty of counts of weight, and now you just have to shake it off and punch back. Uh, in many ways, uh, you see most of the apart from the first war, which is in 47-48, by 1965, the the Chinese were already using Pakistan as a cat's And uh, they were in in a way, it was, it was an extension of the 1962 conflict in many ways, because there's just a gap of three years between that. Uh, that was one of the reasons. The second reason is also because this war was fought across a very, very wide front, and uh, it extended from the, well, people say the run of guts, but actually the Indian Navy was involved as well in the earlier stages of the war, which nobody has actually talked about earlier. And then it kept escalating and it kept escalating and it went right up till Kashmir. And then when things got pretty rough over there, a very major decision was taken by the Indian political establishment where they said that the fighting will not be restricted entirely to JNK and we reserve the right to hit you back in the Punjab or in Rajasthan or in Gujarat. And that actually set the tone at a very, very basic level for what happened. Also, you see, 1965 also led up to 1971 and the liberation of Bangladesh. So actually, when you're looking at the three major conflicts, 1962, which I've covered in my earlier book, The War That Wasn't, uh, and then uh, 1965 and 1971. So in a space of nine years, you fought three major conflicts. And actually, all three conflicts are completely and absolutely related. So from that point of view, 1965 then becomes the pivot around which everything happened.
0: So let's talk about 1962 um which as you know kind of helps to India's conflict with with China you you make, so is the, the the failure in its conflict against China um helps set the stage for 65. I wonder if you might explain kind of how the conflict with China like helps to set the scene then for 65.
1: You see um uh, you, to to really understand what happened in 1962 we fought China across the Himalayas, which is, was earlier until then sort of considered to be impregnable and kind of a geographical uh, wall, which nobody was going to do anything about. And, and in fact, uh, right from the beginning, ever since uh, when the British were, were ruling India, the whole policy has had always, British India, the policy had always been to push the frontiers as far forward as possible. That's why they went into Tibet. That's why young husband went into Tibet. That's why you had the Afghan expeditions. That's why you had expeditions into Burma because they were trying to push the frontier further and further away. Now, China was not, was nowhere on the horizon when India got, got its independence in 1947. We had, a, in the Kashmir, Jammu and Kashmir had a border with Sinkiang, and the rest of India, British India, had a border with Tibet, Nepal, Sikkim, and Bhutan. And then, of course, what is now known as Myanmar, which is at that time, Burma. Uh, When the, uh, after after the Chinese, after the communists overthrew the uh, Kuomintang government in 1949, and drove them off to Taiwan, which is that time Formosa, uh, the the PLA the People's Liberation Army Mao Zedong's Communist China was basically expansionist by nature, and this the first thing they did was they annexed Xinjiang, which was actually a protectorate of both China and the Soviet Union at that time, and nobody reacted to that because after nineteen after the Second World War, the uh, the entire situation was still changing. I mean. The colonial uh, things were called collapsing and the United States was beginning to emerge as the major superpower on one side and the Soviet Union on the other side. And the world was exhausted after World War II. So no one actually reacted. And Mao Zedong pulled off a major land grab when he did that in Xinjiang. After he saw that nobody was reacting to what happened in Xinjiang, he grabbed Tibet. Now, when they grabbed Tibet, you can call it whatever you want, autonomous region, this, that, blah, 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 blah. But the fact is that they, they basically, as the Chinese sort of moved into this area, use India from an Indian perspective, we suddenly had China as a country, as our neighbor, who did not earlier really have a common border with us. And I'm talking about a, of, of a border, of a frontier, which is across 4,000 kilometers. 4000 kilometers is the distance from new delhi to taipei which is the uh, capital of taiwan and 4000 kilometers across some of the roughest and some of the most inhospitable terrain in the world at altitudes of 11 12 13 14 17000 feet and the area immediately there was a there was a conflict because china wanted to get to the arabian sea so the whole thing was that once they had, it was all about trade beyond point. And in 1963, they went ahead and signed the, they 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 took over uh, the Shakskam Valley, which is kind of right at the, on the on the top of Jammu and Kashmir. And from there, they built the Karakoram Highway. And basically, to connect Sinkiang with uh, Tibet, they had to then take the Aksai Chin region. And the Aksai Chin, Chin region was... At that time, according even to the Chinese maps, very much a part of India. So, you know, the whole thing began to unravel at that time. And Jammu and Kashmir became a, a pivotal thing over here. Because JNK was the, was the princely state which was bordering the first 1,500 kilometers. Then the remaining 2,500 kilometers starts from the Lahul Spiti area and then goes right across Garhwal, Kumao, and then you run into Nepal and then you run into sikkim and then you run into bhutan and then you run back into the nifa area which is the northeast frontier agency which is arunachal now and then finally into myanmar so when the chinese actually rolled across uh despite lots of warnings despite lots of uh, you know a very good exercises where, where we we had appreciations that look the chinese are going to do this they're going to do this they're going to do this we had our compulsions. I mean, you know, the leadership of that time was struggling with the aftermath of the British having left India. The colonialism had ripped the heart and the soul and the economic fiber out of this country. Our people had nothing to eat. We were a starving country. I mean, today India is a very different India from what it was then, and it's very difficult to actually remember that to prioritize and talk about frontiers and you know battles and. Is, is 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 one thing, and it's easy to look back and chastise those in power. But we were we were we had other problems, and uh, the PLA, which is under Mao Zedong and Chau and Lai, had a different game plan. They very systematically went about it, and when they did attack us, we were uh, we were in no position to even put up a even a token fight. In fact, you know the very title of my book is "The War That Wasn't," because actually what happened was that there was just a brigade of uh, Indian troops in, not even a brigade, uh, just a handful of Indian troops in Ladakh and less than a brigade again in uh, in the western part of Arunachal and maybe a brigade over there. So now if you're talking about three brigades worth of deployment on our side, you're actually talking about uh, less than one division, one infantry division. One infantry division would have about three 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 brigades. So. You know, for us to actually even look at it as a war is a major, you know, it's a bit of a fallacy. But, but, but the fact is, it completely shattered the Indian uh, self-confidence and everything. And then we were literally on our knees uh, after that because, uh, you know, uh, thing, things had got, gone so badly for us. Now, immediately after that, comes you know, the, 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 the same drama continued. Uh, in fact, very few people are aware of it, that Mountbatten, who was then the CDS of the, uh, after having been the Viceroy of India, was right back uh, trying to influence uh, 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 Nehru, who was the Prime Minister, into releasing Sheikh Abdullah and talking about, he said, you know, he wanted uh, the, the other aspects to the whole thing as to why Kashmir was so important to British interests. Uh, Mountbatten had, when he was the Viceroy, not quite done what he had been briefed to do and he felt that the the those in power for example churchill never spoke to mount after he came back and they had very carefully worked out a scenario where kashmir would have gone to pakistan and mount with his own equation with nehru etc had actually uh, allowed things to slip so he was sent back again as the cds a man who's been the viceroy hanging around just to do things like that this is in the immediate aftermath of the. 1962 war. And I've, 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 documented all that.
0: So, you know, one thing that struck me kind of reading the book was that there was a conflict before the actual 1965 war, you know, kind of a few months before in the, in the run of Kutch, um, which I guess got, it got managed down. There was a truce. Um, but but in some ways they were they were already fighting um just a few weeks before i guess the the formal start of the 65 war so i wonder if you might talk about kind of that i guess that initial period like what were what was going on in the ran of kutch before 19 before the official start of the 1965
1: war you see what ha- what was beginning to happen was that uh, uh the the pakistan leadership at that time was field marshal ayub khan right and uh, he had, he was actually very good for Pakistan. As, as an administrator and as the president of Pakistan, he actually, you know, they were, at that time, Pakistan was doing much better than India was doing. Whether you were looking at the GDP, whether you looking at development, whether you're looking at, because India's problems were, were huge. I mean, they were, they were, it seemed almost unsurmountable at that time and uh, you know when 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 uh, one of the things which uh, ayub and Liaquat ali khan and all these people did was that they started they they firmly placed them they placed pakistan in the nato and cinto camp i mean they they, they leaned towards the united states was 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 blatantly uh, was blatant and whereas india was talking non alignment and you know that was typical of Nehru i mean you know neither here nor there But the fact of the matter is, Pakistan had aligned with with the United States. Now, what happened then? And I'm talking Nicholas now of 1956 and thereabouts. A lot of Pakistani, uh, uh, a lot of American equipment, military hardware, was handed over to the Pakistanis. To the tune that uh, suddenly they had the M47 and the M48 cotton tanks. They had the Daphne, the French uh, Daphne submarines. They had the Sabres, which was the F-86 uh, uh, Sabre jets. They had the F-104 Starfighters. And given their mindset that they were, you know, basically the the Pakistan army has always had a lot of contempt for the, you know, they, they, they always tom tom this whole thing about being the, the uh, you know, the Muslim invaders. The immediate contemporary history of India, the Mughals, this, that, etc. Was that, they, it was easy to sort of, you know, uh, beat, uh, uh, beat, beat beat around with that stick, which they did. And uh, as a result, there was a lot of false bravado. And, you know, they used to use a w- word for the Indian soldiers, which is called "buzdil." Buzdil is like B-U-Z-D-I-L, uh, which basically means uh, cowards. And they used to refer to the Indians as, you know, dhoti, which is like, you know, dirty-wearing Hindus will run away at the first shot, first sound of a shot, which is somewhat what actually happened with, with, with China. And it kind of, kind of, kind of reinforced uh, their, their, their thinking. But what they didn't realize was that even vis-a-vis China, the Indi- Indian troops had actually fought extremely well. It is the officer leadership which had actually collapsed. And once you lead, Indian troops have proved time and again since then, or even before that, if led properly they are almost unbeatable. In fact, Field Marshal Slim in defeat into victory says this again and again and again and again. He says, my Indian troops were by far, by far superior to anything he had, whether they were Canadians, whether they were Australians, whether they were British troops, whether they were West Africans, whether they were Chinese, it didn't matter. He, He swore by the Indian troops. Why? Because Indian troops could get along with very little. They were very, very tough. They were very, very good. But the problem was, in this whole propaganda and the whole thing about partition and the creation of Pakistan, this this thing had really been played up. And then you had a gentleman called Zulfikar Ali Bhutto, who unfortunately for Pakistan, I say more, more for Pakistan than any other country, though even India suffered because of him, he rose to power. Because uh, Ayub Khan made a mistake, he, he was up for the presidential election against uh, Jinnah's sister, Fatima Ali, and, and he would have won that election in any case, but he allowed Bhutto to tamper with that. Now, the moment Bhutto comes into the equation, now, it's important to understand the mindset here. Because Bhutto's father was the Prime Minister of Junagadh which had also opted to be a... Uh, he, as the Prime Minister of opted Junagarh opt, Junagar was a Hindu state. He had opted to be a part of Pakistan. And what had happened at that time was that there were the amphibious landings. We had actually used... The Indians had used uh, whatever vessels of the Indian Royal, Royal Navy and they had actually gone and preempted this whole thing. Now, from Bhutto's point of view, the... The, if you look at that Gujarat coast, you know, the Gulf of Cambay and everything around that, you realize that he would be, after the 62 debacle, Bhutto as the foreign minister, who's calling the shots with the wheat, you know, even with the China, and is overriding Ayub Khan on more and more issues, suddenly sees a major naval Indian exercise develop, even before the of Kutch incident. We had the... Uh, Vikrant, which was the aircraft carrier and its accompanying ships in that area, and uh, Seahawks and Alises were flying around over the Iran of Kutch, etc. Now, again, it's a very complex scenario. You need to understand what the Iran of Kutch is. The Iran of Kutch is actually the divide between the Sindh province of Pakistan and the state of Gujarat. And what is the Iran of Kutch? It is the old delta of the Indus River right? And what the Pakistani claim on the run of Kutch was, that it's actually a dead sea. There may not be water water in it, except during the monsoons. But since it's a wasteland and it's dead sea, they said that the international demarcation for any maritime boundary is through the center. Whereas the run of Kutch had always been a part of the Gujarat state, etc. And there was no doubt about it, because where, the, where, where, where sin starts, it's hard ground and there are sand dunes and stuff like that. And after that, it's just the absolute wasteland, which is about 100 kilometers wide. Now, this, after the Indians withdrew the the naval exercise, the, the Pakistanis kind of got sucked into a military confrontation, which I'm not too sure either side wanted. Because uh, from what my records are, that we are the Indian side was patrolled by the Gujarat State Police. These chaps used to cross over into the Pakistani side, um, into the Sindh province, where you know border areas. There were a couple of small, small places, and mainly the Indian the, these guys from the Gujarat State Police used to go across mainly to pick up prostitutes and stuff like that. And so they had this very nebulous kind of open border until something went wrong. And the whole conflict sort of seemed to start from there. Now, once there was a clash in the run of cards, the Pakistanis could not resist it because it made a lot of sense for them to try out their new military doctrines. Because, see, both India and Pakistan armies were, were basically uh, following the British doctrines of fighting. But with the major influx of uh, equipment, which I've talked about earlier, the American doctrines were also coming into play, where you talked about the thrust with armor, you 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 downplayed the infantry. A lot of armored personnel carriers were being looked at, so you know, so they decided let us try this ploy and see how well it works. And the first thing that happened was at Southern Post in uh, the run of Kutch, where it was not the Indian Army, it was the police again, the CRPF, the Central Reserve Police Force, which actually dug in and fought, and they actually stopped the pattern tanks because the run of Kutch is a swamp. Beyond a point, even tanks cannot operate there. So that skirmish developed over two months. Then the British jumped into the whole thing. Wilson was, Harold Wilson was the Prime Minister, and he he took it upon himself to sort of cool things down, etc., etc. And uh, the ceasefire was brought about in May. And, uh, but at the same time, Bhutto had already put into play what was going to happen in Kashmir. uh, As far as Operation Gibraltar was concerned, And in my book, I have also pointed out that the plan for Operation Gibraltar was drawn up by none other than Mao Zedong along with Bhutto. So Bhutto, the foreign minister, was de facto the chief of the Pakistani army as far as he was concerned. He had a direct line to almost every uh, divisional commander in the the force. And uh, it's Bhutto's psyche which takes over at this point. Bhutto has also tried to influence Pakistan into believing that they're actually Arabs and they have nothing to do with India and stuff like that. So, you know, it's it's a a, a whole, I mean, there are multiple things that play over here. And they all came together in a very systematic manner and unfolded in the manner that they did, which I've documented in my book. So,
0: Eventually you know the, the war begins uh, um, and the war begins with um, I believe it's oh, was it Operations Gibraltar, which is when Pakistan which is when the Pakistan Army sneaks into um, Kashmir and then Operation Grand Slam, which is I think the actual military fence unless, unless I've got that wrong. Um, I mean I guess in these in these early days kind of what you know what drove Pakistan to start the conflict in the way that it did and then how did how, did, how was India able to respond?
1: See, again, the uh, thing goes back to that huge amount of weapon systems which came into Pakistan in 1956 when they signed up with the Seattle and NATO pacts and uh, everything. So, when all this American hardware came in, they suddenly had uh, lots and lots of small arms and mortars and, you know, all the the British equipment which had been left behind was now kind of uh, literally available on the shelf. And they always had a problem in the Kashmir areas, you know, if you look at the Pakistan-occupied Kashmir, what they called Azad Kashmir, and then the northern areas, etc. These areas have been very traditionally very difficult to administer, whether it was the British or whether it was the Indians or whether it was, you know, the Pakistani, it really doesn't matter. So, one way to keep them occupied was to arm them and point them towards Kashmir and fan this whole thing about jihad, which they've been doing since 1947-48. I mean, they've done the same thing in 47-48. They'd armed these tribal luskars and they tried to force the issue with Hari Singh. And, you know, that's now well known as to how things unfolded over there. But this this had become a kind of official state policy for Pakistan to try and use all this element, this this semi-trained tribal element. But what they didn't quite realize with the semi-trained tribal element was that even if they gave it a kind of a trapping with military forces and with officers, etc., a tribal force will at heart remain a highly ill-disciplined force. So when they would go into an area, it didn't matter if it was a Hindu uh, household or a Muslim household or whether they were Sunnis or they were Shias, they would go and rape them in any case. And suddenly, guys were getting very worried. They said, we are doing it in this, in this. We are part of this tribal Laskar. We are doing this. Yeah, what's happening in our area? So, more and more chaps started to drift away. And uh, by that time, the Indian Army, everybody got into the act. Now, Operation Gibraltar is exactly that. Because Bhutto had a direct line with the GOC of 11 Division or 12 Division. I don't remember the uh, 12 Division. He actually planned Operation Gibraltar as a you know, we'll let it, it was a repeat of what they did in 47, 48, we'll, we'll put in the tribal lashkar. we'll see what happens, the local population will rise, it was all theoretically very dramatic and they had, it was, it was very systematically done, they had about twelve or 11 or 12 columns, each column with about a thousand men, the basic Indian records uh, and estimates have always been that there were 30,000 people, tribals, but I in my I find that hard to believe and I've argued in the book that it's more likely to be around ten to 12,000, which is a hell of a figure in any case. Uh, and uh, yeah, But I don't think they were, they were ever going to succeed because uh, there was a kind of a f- element of foolhardiness in what this whole plan was. And once they went in, and luckily for the Indians, they had a chap called General Harbaks Singh, who was the Western Army commander, who was basically, by, by, very, by nature, a very aggressive general. He decided to get preemptive and to uh, actually strike and cut off the main areas of ingress into the valley, which was basically Haji Pir and also the Gurez Valley. Now, the moment the Indians moved there, which the Pakistanis did not expect, and they had control to the routes of ingress into the valley, it also meant, meant basically that you were shutting off the, the, the escape route for the, gang, the, the, the 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 groups which were already inside. And the moment, the moment your escape is cut off, and this is true for any, any conflict, that, you you know, everybody's going to start looking over their, over the shoulders and and really wondering what's going on. And, and when, when that happened, Pakistan panicked and went in for Operation Grand Slam, which is basically they tried a major armored thrust to try and cut off the Akhnoor bridge, etc. But again, Again, it wasn't going to succeed because you know they completely misread the terrain. Uh, they came in and chum, chum. When you come in and chum, you've got the foothills starting off, so it's it's a kind of a funnel because you've got the Chenab River running on the south and the and the foothills on the side. So you know as you go in toward where the Chenab debouches from the Himalayas, it becomes a tighter and tighter fun- funnel. So they overran chum, they got to Joria, but they never got beyond that. And the idea was, let's try and cut them off. But they did manage to create an element of panic on our side. There was a lot of, uh, uh, it took us a while, I mean, to respond. And then, you know, halt the operations. But again, I think a lot of military historians have accepted the official versions of uh, what was actually told to them. Because the initial failure of being able to, nobody could have stopped them. Nobody could have stopped the initial thrust of patterns and stuff like that against AMX-13. One, one squadron of AMX-13 tanks holding a frontage of something like 30 kilometers. Uh, it was an impo- you were going to have losses. But you see, when you have initial reverses, you tend to start covering up and telling a lot of lies. And we did this, we did that, we did this. We didn't. We, we fell back. We, I mean, it's, you know, that a bit of a problem on the Indian side here because I find that a lot of our history gets... Uh, terribly coloured and shrouded by by the awards which have been sort of uh, doled out. There are there are there are there are plenty of issues on this, and uh, uh, it has to be sort of you know we have to we have to cause correct and sort this out uh, in the in the, in our own, for, in our own interest.
0: So. You know, we spent a lot of time talking about the run up to the war now, um, and not a lot about maybe the war itself. And you know, there's, uh, you know, the war features, was it like some of the largest tank battles since World War Two, you know, there were naval engagements, there were air engagements, too. I wonder if you might kind of give an example or two of particular, you know, operations, particular battles, particular events during the war, that you, you know, found most interesting as you were conducting your research for the book.
1: See, basically, uh, there's a lot of talk around 1965 about being an armored battle where there were a lot of tanks used on both sides, etc. But actually, it was a war of attrition. It wasn't a war of, you know, trying to cut one side off or doing. The, 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 the terrain in Punjab and Rajasthan and all doesn't quite allow for that. It's not like Europe or, you know, even even say, uh, where you where where you have armor sweeping forward and you have major arrows across the. Uh, the maps this happen, that this happened that happened. You have a, a complete intricate system of canals. And the river system of the Punjab is very, very interesting, which I've which I've sort of tried to bring out in the book, you know, the Rachana Dwab, the Bari Dawab, and all this. I show exactly how the whole thing works. And in that, you're fighting in these very, very limited compartments, and it becomes a war, it became a war of attrition. So unfortunately, I would say that a lot of the emphasis in the immediate writing of the 1965 war was on the armored corps, which was not necessarily the, should have been the case. Uh, There was a lot of, since it's a war of attrition, most of the fighting had been done by the infantry. And though there were certain battles which did get recognized, a lot of them did not. What to be the most interesting factor is the Indian Air Force at this point of time, because the Indian Air Force was not used in 1962. And in 1965, The IAF, uh, flying the British uh, Fallen Nat and the Hunter-Hawker, Hawker-Hunter aircraft uh, went up against the Sabres and stuff like that. And though our losses on the ground were stupendous, I mean, the Indian Air Force lost 75 aircraft to the Pakistan Air Force, which the Pakistan Air Force known as the Fijaya, they lost 22. So, if you just look at pure numbers, I mean, it was a runaway success for the Pakistanis, but actually it was not because those 22 which were shot down on the Pakistani shot down were, in, were, were all in aerial combat, whereas our losses were mainly on the ground. So the the entire, the way the air battles unfolded, etc., etc., it actually is very, very fascinating. And, uh, you know, I, I think uh, if the Indians hadn't made a major miscalculation towards the end of the war, uh, not the Indians. I mean, the army chief had not made this huge blunder. I think uh, where he completely m- misinformed the prime minister about what our reserves were in in terms of ammunition, the war in 1965 would have been an absolute smashing defeat for Pakistan. They were on their knees. But unfortunately, this you know General Chaudhary at that time, for reasons best known to him himself, God bless his soul. Um, you know it, it completely let the indian side down and then of course all the nonsense that started around you know the, the international pressures the tashkent agreement this that the indians were drawing from areas that captured it all created a situation which uh, i think led up to 1971. Uh, we had the ability and the means and the and the circumstances it, around the 23rd of september when the ceasefire has been called. Had we extended it by five days, I think Pakistan's war-making ability, uh, military ability, would have been shattered. And had that happened, had that—I mean, of course, it's ifs and Nicholas. But had that happened, three million Bengalis would not have lost their lives six months later.
0: So you—you you, you mentioned the the Tashkent Agreement, and I think it's—it's it's, you know the the war is ended. It, the, sorry, the war. There's a ceasefire. I think it's like seventeen days after. It begins, but obviously, as you note, there 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 are many violations, and then Tashkent So, can I? I wonder if you might talk about kind of this, uh, what happens after the war? You know, quote unquote, ends with the ceasefire, and then I guess formally ends with the with the Tashkent Agreement.
1: No, 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 nothing of the sort. Right, exactly. (laughs) The ceasefire agreement. Actually, some major operations were fought after the ceasefire. Uh, The battle of. uh, you know, most of the, Cham, uh, not not Chamdoria, but the area north of that, the Punch and uh, um, Rajori sectors, you know, which is the area leading up to the Kashmir Valley. Uh, some of the major actions were fought after the ceasefire. And the fighting continued. In fact, it intensified in many areas. Um, the only thing was that, yes, uh, in the Punjab, the guns fell silent. But it was, Indian troops are sitting well inside Pakistan. They were, uh, they were, you see, the, the entire defense of Pakistan, as, as the book points out, was on the Ichugal Canal. So, we had got to the Ichigal Canal, and in terms of territory, the entire, I mean, the entire eastern Pakistan, which is the eastern strip of Pakistan along the Ichigal Canal was with us, and uh, every, you know, a lot of skirmishes, call it whatever you want, but there was no capturing of territory on the large, larger scale. There was this constant capturing of territory to try and get the upper hand, occupy certain posts, so that you dominate the line of control. But, uh, and this continued, this continued for days and days and days after the war, after the ceasefire. The Tuscan agreement was actually a huge letdown for the Indian army and for the Indian people, if I may say so. Because, you see, the, the Haji Peer Buls has always been the main area of ingress into jammu and Kashmir and we had captured it we had cut off the head and then we handed it back to them so this had two implications when you're handing something back then you can't say it originally belonged to you it's a kind of a tacit admission that the area is disputed that's well i mean that's the legal thing the other thing is that you know it took sweat and sweat and guts and blood and lives to capture it and, the polit- and Shastri, for it, it cost him his life. He had a heart attack that same night. But uh, Prime Minister Shastri did agree to the ceasefire and agreed to withdraw from not only uh, Haji Peer, but also from other areas in inside uh, Jabu and Kashmir, which we had captured, and we should not, under any circumstances, have re- returned those. But once that happened, I mean, you know, uh, uh, India is basically a c- country where the army is uh, is by the constitution. It is the civil authority which is the, the prime minister and the people of. I mean, India through parliament is the is the supreme thing. So, you know, it happened. It happened.
0: I think I have I have two more questions, kind of about about the about the war and and its legacy. But the first one is kind of what's the what were some of the you can say international geopolitical effects of the 1965 war, you know, how did the war affect India and Pakistan's relations with countries like the U S the Soviet union, China, the UK kind of how, how did the war change India and Pakistan's kind of relationships on the world stage?
1: Pakistan did not particularly get impacted in that sense, but India did. Uh, India's uh, strengthening of rela- relations with the Soviet Union began to really uh, start uh, and really come into shape post 1965. Um, for example, our navy we started inducting a lot of Soviet equipment, uh, the missile boats, the Osa class missile boats, which actually attacked Karachi in 1971. Uh, there was a very, there was a major major quantum shift in Indian uh, thinking. Uh, we were, there was a lot of, uh, there were a lot of developments in that area, and uh, the Indians kind of, though we remained officially un- uh, non-aligned, we were definitely pushed uh, to a major, ma- major, to a major degree towards the Soviet, towards the Soviet bloc. Now, when that happened, you have to look at and understand the American psyche, because the Americans have never really understood what non-alignment is. They have a pretty naive and simple explanation to life. Gee, you're either with us or you're against us, you know, I mean, that's it. And uh, the non-alignment was something which they really didn't quite cotton on to. And it's something which goes back to even the early 1960s. In fact, when India uh, used military force to annex uh, Goa, uh, which which was basically a Portuguese colony, President uh, John F. Kennedy had actually said about Nehru, it was akin to Catching a priest in a whorehouse, you know. Uh, so it was the, the the with the Americans, the Indian relationship was had begun to kind of improve post nineteen sixty two. Though a lot of the fight, a lot of the the, the reasons for the sixty two conflict was also American, in uh, you know, dabbling with what was going on in Lhasa, the bringing out of the Dalai Lama, all kinds of things. But uh, with the U.S., I think post nineteen sixty five. Things really cooled off for India, and uh, the Americans and the British were seen more and more and more as, a, a, you know, backing Pakistan, which which makes a lot of sense because basically Pakistan was created purely for geopolitical reasons by the British, by the British. And it's, a, it's a, I've written an earlier book called The Long Road to Siachen, where I've actually argued about this i've i've given an example of that the actual plan for the division of india was made in 1919 and not in 1932 in the round table conference as people and our history books want us to believe Uh, also the fact that uh, uh, Jinnah, who had actually resigned from politics and moved back to uh, london as a barrister and then he was actually recruited by churchill through his secretary and he was then used as a, the whole idea of Pakistan was drilled into his head, and it it became a reality. There's actually, you know, Nicholas, actually there's no reason for India India and Pakistan to even have got divided on. This whole India, Hindu-Muslim divide simply did not exist, all right? Before 1936, there were no Hindu-Muslim riots in the subcontinent, period. There were invasions, yes, there was this, there was that, but that's different. There were never any riots. How did the riots start? The riots started in 1936 because in the United Provinces, which is now Uttar Pradesh as a state, one of the largest states in North India, in in this area, they they the British started this whole thing that the Muslims will vote for Muslims and Hindus will vote for Hindus. The moment they did that, riots have begun. And if you take all the riots that have happened between 1936 and 1947 and plot them on a map, and put red pins there, you will find that the entire migration into Pakistan in 1947, after the Radcliffe Line was drawn up and the whole horror of partition began, is only from those areas where the red pins are. There was no migration from any other area. Subsequently, yes, but at that time, none. So, you know, the circumstantial evidence also proves to, uh, points to that. And, uh, well, the way things played out, it was the Soviets who actually then stood with India in 1971. And uh, the Americans, uh, well, you call the Americans the Americans, but basically it was Nixon and Kissinger, Kissinger who were uh, you know, the main guys. And again, the, China is the, is the whole thing. And Pakistan was, by the early 1970s, late 1960s, becoming the pivot around which the Western world was reaching out to China so pakistan's position geopolitically where it is strategically placed etc pakistan has played its cards extremely well and badly <laughs> so you know, whichever you look at it.
0: so my 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 last question is kind of looking at the the legacies of the 1965 war today um you know we're we're coming close we're not quite there but we're coming close to kind of 60 years since the war happened um, so, yes, like what are the legacies of the war and, you know, what are the what does the war in its aftermath kind of tell us about um, the prospects for peace or at least stability, you know, along the India-Pakistan border today?
1: Well, 65, uh, of course, as I said, led, led to 71, where the issues were quite different um, because basically 71 was a clash between. Again, a very unnatural creation of East and West Pakistan and the Bengali population as against the Punjabi population. Basically, it also went on to prove that it it wasn't a Hindu-Muslim problem. It was also a Muslim-Muslim problem because it didn't stop the Pakistani army and the Razakars in, in East Pakistan from killing 3 million people. 3 million people is a hell of a lot of people, you know. It's 30 lakhs is 30, 100,000, I mean, you know, whatever. It's, it's three, three, you keep, you start thinking of the zeros, it, it, it boggles the daylight out of your mind. And, and and, and you know, the, the 71, again, changed the dynamics of the entire uh, relationship between India and Pakistan. And then, you know, it's, it's an ongoing thing. And uh, at the core of the entire issue was uh, Pakistan has only one one uh, thing which it can keep waving around in the in international listing and, it, and basically that is Kashmir, Jammu and Kashmir. And when it comes to Jammu and Kashmir, it's again very interesting because India in the initial years was, you know, I, I don't want to sound, I am, you know, bluntly critical of the foreign service because they, they also, but the Indians had a very preachy approach to politics in, in those days. And we kind of isolated ourselves from everyone. In Jammu and Kashmir, this so-called plebiscite, which Pakistan has been harping on and harping on and harping on, where it was suggested by the United Nations on, in, on in, in, uh, I'm forgetting the date of the resolution, I think it was 1st February 1949 or whatever, where they said that a plebiscite should be held, but there were four or five conditions put down. The first condition was that every Pakistani soldier will get off Jabu and Kashmir's soil. They never did that. And then they, they said that will be conducted under the, you know, whichever. None of those clauses were met. And, and Liaquat Ali who was then the Pakistani Prime Minister. He actually refused the plebiscite. Nehru was quite willing to hold it. But it's the Pakistanis who say we don't want it because they knew they weren't going to do that. Because after what had happened in 47 and 48, where the tribal rescuers had gone in and, and raped and Plundered and It had opened everybody's eyes that they were nobody's saviors. They were here to kill, loot, pick up women, do what they had to do. The tribal, this thing had, you know, it's, it's, it's quite brutal. And uh, it didn't really matter what your community was. You could be a Hindu or Sikh, a Christian or whatever. You were by... In their eyes, you were fair game. They, they, they'd, they'd pick you up and they'd do what they would and, you know, bottom bottom line is nobody would likes to see their own families get uh, plundered and raped and killed. So, there were a lot of issues here, all of which, you know, it's a very complex story. But the wars itself, as to having left a legacy, yeah, they kind of impacted you at that point of time, but in geopolitics, you keep moving, and uh, what subsequent events in Afghanistan, subsequent events in Iraq, in in, in Iran, the the Chinese uh, entire dependence on the Karakoram Highway, the northern areas, the Shashkam Valley going to China, etc., etc. So it's the, the the it's become a very very murky and uh, complex game, and. The, the tail today wags the dog because the real issue was the British simply created Pakistan because they wanted a platform to be able to get to the oil in Bahrain and in uh, uh, Iran and in uh, in Baghdad. And I mean, in, in Iraq. And just for that, they created the state of, of Pakistan. And uh, I mean, the people of India and Pakistan, unfortunately, did not have the information or the ability to look beyond, how did you really expect that? Because, you know, uh, an a, a Indian leader or a Pakistani leader, it's like little frogs in a well. Very few of them had ever been exposed to geopolitics. Very few of them really understood what the game was. And unfortunately, the people of India and Pakistan today are fighting each other or, or are hostile to each other on a problem which is actually not ours. It was initially a British versus the Russian Russian threat, so-called British versus, and which was after World War II, it simply metaphors into the Chinese versus the Americans or the Americans versus the Chinese. The Americans having taken over from the British and the Chinese having sort of become the more dominant power as against the Soviets. And the people of India and Pakistan have paid the price then and they'll continue to pay the price today because, uh, frankly... I don't really see a very simple solution to it anymore. So I think
0: that's a good place to interview with uh, Shiv Kanal Verma, author of Night 65, A Western Sunrise. Kanal, I actually have a real final question for you, which is uh, where can people find your work and what's next for you?
1: Oh, I think you had to ask my publisher that because Alop has been sort of the Amazon in India is of course selling the book. It is doing quite well, both 1962 and 65. I don't know what the international networks are, but I do know the book is selling in the United States uh, through Amazon. Uh, I really have very little idea of what's happening as far as the actual distribution and everything is concerned, uh, Nicholas. But uh, what is next? Um, I am now. My autobiography is coming out in August this year. And we are also launching a major uh, initiative, which we are calling alternate education at the moment, where we are trying to bring very high-class material, whether it is the Northeast, whether it is Indian wildlife, whether, these are, whether it is South India, whether it is illustrated military history. Uh, we, are, we are wanting to make all this available to Indian schools and colleges and educational institutions, and if we can... May even even partly succeed in what we are wanting to do we w- we will virtually literally change the face of indian education uh, that is our objective but at the at the moment my immediate aim is to get my autobiography out which is uh, called the 6 degrees of separation it will be out in august and uh, that's being followed by some large size coffee table books and then this entire alternate education game that we are working on at the moment
0: so, you can follow me, Nicholas Gordon, on Twitter at nickri Gordon. That's N I C K R I G O R D O N. You can go to ageviewbooks.com to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts. Follow on Twitter at Book reviews Asia. That's reviews plural. And there are many more author interviews at the New Books Network and NewBooksNetwork.com. The RB Podcast on our favorite podcast apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Rate us, recommend us, share us with your friends to support us interviewing those writing in, around, and about Asia. Um, stay tuned for info info coming up on the show. But before then, Kunal, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you,
1: Nicholas. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much.